I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome back to Play Me and our interview with Daniel McIver, the playwright of New Magic Valley Fun Town, available on Play Me now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Laura. Hey, Chris. It's nice to be back on the podcast recording new plays and interviewing playwrights, especially now with everything that's happening in the world once again with COVID-19 and how it continues to really hurt the performing arts communities. I know it feels unreal that we're here again with so many companies having to once again cancel shows with a very uncertain future ahead. No one knows what's going to happen, but I really hope Omicron leaves just as quickly as it got here and maybe we'll have a brighter spring, but only time will tell. I have to say that I found it really cathartic speaking to Daniel McIver about his play, He and I spoke just before the holidays when the reality of things was hitting hard, and he was charming and vulnerable and managed to stay positive despite that feeling that the world was crumbling around us. And you got to talk to him a little bit about how he was coping over the last couple of years, because he's pretty upfront about his experiences with anxiety. And mental health is definitely a theme that comes up a lot in his work, including New Magic Valley Funtown. Yes, we spoke about what it was like for him growing up as a gay kid in the 70s in Cape Breton, how being raised on an island informed his work, and that the protagonist of his play, Dougie, was actually inspired by his real-life brother. Daniel McIver is a playwright, actor, film director, and screenwriter. He's the winner of the prestigious Eleanor and Lou Sminovich Prize, the GLAAD Award, and the Governor General's Literary Award. This is Laura's interview with Daniel McIver. Well, it's such a pleasure to get to sit down and speak with you. I want to start by asking for you, what is New Magic Valley Fun Town about? Um, you know, uh, the playwright Judith Thompson once said that um, if I could tell you what the play was about, I would just have that printed on a billboard and I wouldn't go to all the trouble of doing the play. Um, it's a hard question, but it's a, but it's a common question, and I get it a lot. Um, it's a, it's a hard question though. Um, I guess it's about grief in a way. It's a kind of a, a boisterous, heartbreaking comedy about grief or something. Um, and it's grief not not so much grief the way that we think of that. I, it's more about grieving a life that you didn't have, or a life that you lost, or a life that you didn't that you wanted to live and didn't or but but it's funny (laughs) a funny play a funny heartbreaking play about grief 
Daniel, your play New Magic Valley Fun Town is set in Cape Breton, and it has these wonderful, nuanced, specific characters. And I know you grew up in Cape Breton. I wonder how much of you is in this show? Yes, it's a lot of me in the show. There's a lot of my brother in the show. I wrote the play for my brother, and um, it's set in a the play is set in a trailer, which when, when Richard Rose, the director, who's an upper Canadian, and I said, you know, a trailer. And he was like, a trailer? Like, you pull behind a car. I'm like, no, 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 no. A trailer, like in a trailer park. And so he wasn't quite sure what I meant. So I was at my brother's at the time, and I he lives in a trailer. And I took a bunch of pictures of the trailer, uh, my brother's trailer. And Richard loved it so much that we recreated my brother's trailer. So it's actually my brother's trailer is the set that you don't see in the podcast. But we when we perform it live, we're on that in the same trailer. Um, yeah, my brother is a, a model for uh, Dougie, for sure. And and some of the situations that are talked about are based on real life situations that occurred in Cape Breton that I, that, um, um, but yeah, for sure, there's, there's a big part of me. Uh, Cape Bretoners are always Cape Bretoners, like Newfoundlanders. Well, the, David French, the playwright, once said that Cape Bretoners are just Newfoundlanders who ran out of money on their way to Toronto, which is uh, really quite accurate in, when you, when the, when the, the, in terms of personalities. Uh, but um, when I spend a little bit, I spent the most of the pandemic there. And uh, I'm, when I'm there, my I, the accent comes really back, back quite strongly to me. I understand when we recorded um, the play that your brother has since passed that's correct. Did he get to see the play? And how did he feel about elements of his life being um, portrayed in, in, a, in a hit show? We never did the play in Sydney where he was, and he wasn't well enough to travel. But his son saw it, his son and his son's family. And, and he saw, he saw uh, these, there was a review in the, in the Globe and Mail, Kelly Nestruck wrote, and featured a large photograph of, of us the cast dancing in the trailer. And um, my brother read the review and he called me and he said, I know what you're doing up there. I know what you're doing. And I, I said, well, it's not really you. It's, you know, but uh, yeah. So he, no, I think he was, I think he was flattered and, and my, uh, his son, yeah, his son definitely recognized elements of, of him. My brother doesn't doesn't sort of go through suffer has it didn't suffer all of the trauma that Dougie does or did. That's a kind of comp, that's a bit of a compilation of my brother and my father and myself. But his my brother's illness and my brother was OCD, and as I gave that to Dougie, so that was a big part of the recognition I think in the family for my brother. What was it about that environment that that captured your imagination for this play? Uh, I, I mean, Cape Breton is, uh, I wouldn't tell the stories I tell if I hadn't come from Cape Breton. Living on an island, you are just really aware of endings, or you're surrounded by endings. The land ends, you're really conscious of it. It's right there all the time. And so there's a, there's a dark humor, I think, that's pretty innate. Certainly Newfoundlanders have it, Cape Bretoners have it. That just they're just the stories are so delicious because they they tend to be funny and painful, <laughs> which I guess is my favorite kind of story, a funny painful story. The 
Cape Bretoners, I find in my experience, certainly at the class that I come from, a working class, they're, they're, they're very guarded and incredibly verbal, which is so wonderful. It makes for great characters because you, you end up using your the language as a shield. So you use a lot of it. And, uh, you know, the, the beauty of the way people use language, um, but really kind of not giving you a lot of information, but uh, a lot of uh, color. I love how it's uh, it's alluding to another time that we we'll get hints about and we'll find out more about as the play evolves. But it is a like we do, we don't get to see these characters, um, Cheryl and Dougie and Alan, as teenagers, but we get a little hint of it. Um, and so I feel I feel like when I'm listening to it that uh, I really wonder what they were like then. I wonder what it was like for you growing up as a teenager at that time in Cape Breton and how much of that era and your own experiences are brought into that play. I knew I was leaving Cape Breton from the time I became conscious of where I was. I just knew that I didn't, at that, certainly for the journey that I was on and I knew, you know, my queerness and my interests in esoteric things, I knew that I, I wasn't going to be, I didn't have, there was nothing for me there that way. Uh, certainly as a person who was going to be moving through their 20s and 30s and developing. So I knew I was going. Um, I think someone like Dougie and like my brother, but certainly like someone like the character Dougie ends up knowing that this is their, this is where they're going to be and this is where they're going to live and this is probably where they're going to die. And so that's when you get that situation, like those were the best years, you know, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> there's nowhere. It's, it's, so there's that, there's a nostalgia for how great it was, which of course it probably wasn't. <laughs> but so for me, uh, I, I, I didn't, I struggled a bit. I, I, I felt, I felt that I wasn't authentically myself entirely when I was there and I was, I was trying to figure out how to get out. Now going back, of course, I'm quite happy there and I don't feel I'm not, um, I've, I've developed as I feel like I've, I continue to develop and I can continue to do that there because I'm not hiding something. I guess I was hiding something. I was hiding my queerness. It, it, for me, I didn't have the experience that Dougie and Cheryl and Alan had. Um, although maybe it was, my experience was probably closer to Alan's because he knew Though he wasn't queer, he knew he was going. Yeah, I found it, um, there's sort of a real bittersweet quality to it. Because you're, anytime you're getting together with somebody that you were young with and you're no longer young, and particularly when somebody is ill, it's, you know, there is a, a, a beautiful sadness to that. Um, did, did writing that play make you think about your youth and aging? It made me think that way. I, I think it's more this thing, you know, when you talk about beautiful sadness, it's the Buddhists talk about the most highly evolved state of being is when your eyes are welling with tears at the beauty and temporary nature of all things. You know, that, 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 that moment of being slightly overfull is the kind of the most true state. As, as Beckett so, so bluntly said, born astride a grave, you know. So understanding that things, everything is so temporary and, and, and that's what makes it so beautiful. That's a beautiful sadness. And that's something I think I aspire for in all the work that I do. But it, it's, it's particularly present, I think, in this play because it's nostalgic. And I think nostalgia, you know, I think if, like if nostalgia was a sound, it would be Joni Mitchell's voice, you know? It's like that kind of, it's just 
heartbreaking. I don't know. Nostalgia for me, I guess I never think of nostalgia without feeling blue. And the play is full of um, so many secrets and unspoken truths. And we get a sense of that early when Cheryl's checking Dougie's pills. Um, how do secrets play into this? Oh, yeah. That's such a fi- family thing. And yeah. I, I think even just now it being the holidays coming up, um, I don't think there's a family that doesn't have some some kind of a secret. But what was it for you writing that play? Aside from the the big, big secret that we find out at the end, there's lots of little secrets along the way. Yeah, it's that, it's that thing about the way we, we're protecting people from things all the time. The, the issue that I end up having with often when I go back and spend time is that my directness is uh, misidentified as, uh, as, as, I don't know what, me being mean or impolite or something, but I'm very direct. And that's directness is not valued um, because it, it's about protecting people's feelings, but often at the, at the, at the, at the cost of, of not releasing trauma, um, I think, unfortunately. So why do you want to go back? Why do you want to talk about that? Why do you want to dig all that up for? That's past. You know, that's very much the, a lot of the of energy around. Why do you, it doesn't matter. It does, but it does. But and that's why mental health, particularly male mental health is such, is, 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 is so, um, is such an issue in Cape Breton. There's the idea of, of, of revisiting trauma is re-traumatizing and there's no system to kind of support. There's not a strong system of support. So secrets are um, plentiful and well-kept and guarded and, uh, um, and I think often seen as being necessary. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You explore both homophobia and racism in this play, and it it makes me wonder what it might have been like for you growing up in Cape Breton in the 1970s as a, a gay kid, and what you think it might have been like for those who were of color growing up there then. You know, I was very conscious of the fact that like my my family, my father was had the casual racism, like Dougie, where he would never have said, you know, I love Charlie Pride, like that, you know, I got nothing against black people, but he was clearly, you know, he had that kind of casual racism that we're um, that many of us just there we have a bias that just comes with you know being the white being default. Um, there was clear in, in Sydney, there was the black people lived in Whitney Pier and the white people lived wherever they wanted to. <laughs> that was kind of the weird. And I noticed that was strange. It wasn't like the white people lived in Sydney and the black people lived. My brother lived in Whitney Pier, my white brother. He could live wherever he wanted, but the black people lived 
all of the everybody lived in Whitney Pier. That's not true now, but certainly for a long time that was true. So it became really clear to me that there were there were rules. There were rules for white people that were different than the rules for black people. And I was um, very aware of that um, very early on. And, you know, the gay thing for me was, I, I was just really, it was clear to me that there was partly the church and, and ignorance, um, that there was no way that I was going to be able to live out in any way, even as a, you know, a teenager who, when I was very conscious of my gayness, um, although I grew up, you know, I went to high school with Bride McDonald, who's also a playwright, and um, he uh, was pretty out. He was very out, actually. And he seemed to, it was, so he managed to survive, but he, there was a cost to that, and I just wasn't willing to pay it. So I, I, I hid in plain sight. Like, I just did things like I, I, as much as I was interested in the theater club or the theater department or the theater class or whatever, I wouldn't take it because I knew that was basically a painting a target on my back. So I got involved in student government and I kind of d did other things to hide in another way, but I wasn't willing to go to the, walk down the hallway of the theater um, because I knew what that would betraying myself. <laughs> Do you find like you think back to the way it was and see it with a different perspective that obviously you would have been able to have at that time. I know I'm from a small town and I think about the students of color, the students that I knew were gay. And I, I just see what they're, what they're going through in a different way or try to understand what they're going through in a different way that I, that I could not have accessed at that time. I just didn't have the awareness. But I knew, see, that's the thing about, I knew I was leaving. I, I always knew I was going to go. So I didn't, I was just like saving myself it seemed easier or even in all its difficulty before we were really made so conscious of the beast of capitalism when it seemed kind of like before we realized what that plastic was going to kill us it seemed kind of convenient and charming and fun <laughs> i mean you're one of canada's most celebrated playwrights and you've have written from the perspective of a gay person for for decades now and i just i was wondering now that that is um, so much more accepted and mainstream, mainstream thank you, mainstream, mm. but you did it when it wasn't. And I wonder, mm. did you ever get any pushback or did anybody ever try to steer you away from that so that you would be writing something that would be more accessible to a mainstream audience? No, that's where my, my lack of courage worked for me and the community because I never, I didn't have any agenda. I, I wasn't interested in the mainstream necessarily. I wasn't interested in, uh, as I, 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 in some ways I preferred it when we were, as I like to say, over the rainbow and under the radar. Uh, I never really was pu pushing it. I didn't have a, a politic. I, I, this was just the world I lived in and these were the people that I saw in it and this is how I felt. So what ended up happening was that people would come and see these shows. Straight people would see them and say, God, that's so familiar. Like, that's just like our relationship. It's like, yeah. So I was always interested in how we were similar. I wasn't looking for rights that I didn't feel I had. I was pretty, I felt I was pretty privileged. Again, I was, you know, I was. I was, um, I benefited from being, you know, white mostly not neurodivergent person. So I was able to make my way. But I think it was because I, no, no one really, I didn't really feel much pushback. But I, I got, I, when I came to Toronto, I, I immediately went into 
kind of connected with Buddies in Bad Times, which was, you know, one of the largest gay theaters in, or queer theaters in, in North America. Uh, so I was, I was in a pretty, I was surrounded by like-minded people mostly. It was more, I think, the style of my work was, I remember that at Tarragon, the first time I was at Tarragon um, uh, under Urjo Kreda, I, brought, I would bring him plays and he would say, well, it's not a play. It's like, well, 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 history has probably proven him wrong. So it was more style, I think, that I was getting pushed back against. Now, this is now New Magic Valley Funtown. Uh, it would have been old Tarragon. They would have adored it because it, it was everything, everything they love. Sort of East Coast uh, drama, comedy, you know. So in, in some ways, it honors my beginnings at Tarragon, I guess. Because a lot of your shows are solo shows, confessional shows. Yeah, or or um, a lot of my work is minimalist. Plays like In on It or or Never Swim Alone. There, are, I mean, I have written shows that I think would be called pretty traditional. His Greatness is pretty traditional. This one, um, Marion Bridge, is a play that's well known in mine. That's pretty traditional. Um, but much of my work is is more th- what I guess people would call postmodern or thea- or highly theatrical. Um, and that stuff, I got a bit of pushback against in, in terms of it not fitting into certain theaters' mandates. A lot of your shows um, touch on depression and mental health, which feels very relevant right now in the middle of a you know fourth, fifth wave of the pandemic. Is that something you consciously explore? Again, I think I'm just speaking from my planet. You know, that's my planet. Mental health is a big part of my planet. I've always had a, I've been anxious and I probably would have, as a kid, I would, I, if I had been a kid or an urban child today, I probably would have been medicated. Uh, I had, I was manic and anxious and depressed and all, all, all that stuff. I bet. But, but again, and I guess it's why it, to me, that, Writing first, I think, saved me from, um, got me on a, a road where I was able to look at my issues and instead of drowning them. Um, so, all, and I and I think that's just, you know, I, I wouldn't say that the work is therapeutic for me. That's not its aim, but it ends up being that. But I think that it, and, and I'm, I think that I'm hoping that it's that for the people experiencing it as well, not just for me. I guess just on that subject, I wonder how you've been coping because you and I are talking today. Omicron is uh, hitting us with a sort of new force that we maybe didn't necessarily seem coming. I'm just wondering how, as someone who has been openly um, experienced. Openly anxious. Um, openly anxious, which aren't we all now, but may- maybe we didn't realize we were before. Yeah. But how, how have you managed during this time? How do you get through this, especially another uh, artist in theater when it's been so hard for the performing arts community. I've been working on myself since I realized I had a self. Um, I've been trying to figure out how to get better just from living. Life feels like a kind of, well, life is a terminal illness in some ways, isn't it? But um, it's also got hit some tra- mental health challenges just living. So I've always been tr- working on myself. So I've been open, always been open to therapy. I've been, I've been mostly most of my adult life. I've been in some kind of cognitive therapy situation, uh, so that I've been 
a, a real talker about uh, trying to look at things. Um, so, and I've been doing that. And through the through the pandemic, I've been working with someone on somatic work, which is of the like, which is this idea of I'm sure many people know, but it's the, you you hold psycho your psych, psychological your emotional world in your body. So I've been working over Zoom with someone, and that's been particularly helpful because of we're we're in a we're in a situation where our bodies are being attacked or the threat of attack on our bodies and health anxiety is just through the roof for most people. Um, so I've been really looking at how my health anxiety or my is held in my body and relates emotionally. So I went back to school last year. That's how, that's one of the ways I coped last year is I went back to school and got my master's. And, and one of the things I noticed is they really claimed that the, the academics have really claimed the word dramaturgy. They're using it for ev all everything. I'm, I, we need to dramaturge this conversation. Like it's, it's this ongoing. So I think that I've dramaturged, I've always been dramaturging my life. And, and in doing that, you're giving yourself a little bit of distance from your situation. I mean, that's, that's what they train us what people around, you know, what, when you're feeling most anxious, you just sort of, you breathe, you root yourself, you get in your feet, you kind of get in your body. Um, you, st you look at what is happening. You don't just react. I think that that's key too, is, is understanding that we have to be less reactive and understand that we need to look at our reactions before we act on them. We have to look on the things that make us look at the things that make us react before we take action. And then we'll find that often they will leave us. That's my amateur. That self feels like a bit of amateur psychology on my part. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I prefer to be an amateur psychologist than an amateur epidemiologist. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I think we could use that more, yeah, yeah. a lot more. Yeah. So do you feel, I know it's, I guess, maybe good to just be in the present and, 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 and not be analyzing the situation, but do you feel hopeful? Do you have hope? I don't know. Hope is a funny thing. Uh, Bob Metcalf, who used to run Prairie Theater Exchange, always talked, he talked about um, that um, hope, was what, hope was what what got us in trouble. Um, and that the hopelessness was where we're going to be okay. Um, because, and I can under, and I understand in some ways hope throws us into the future, doesn't it? Um, like, so as you indicated, right? Um, I, be I, I believe in meaning. Um, I believe that nothing's for naught. I believe that, that we can't judge difficulty as negative or misery as negative. And I think that comes from, I, I lean into Buddhism a bit um, in my life, I guess. And so it's more about not qualifying things as like, it's again, it's like, it's like, it's like, as the kids want us to do, get away from the binary, right? It's why we have to get away from those binaries of it's good, it's bad. It, like not just binaries exist beyond gender. Um, and I think on every, in every case, binary is going to get us in trouble following the binary. And um, my misery is not necessarily the th what 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 takes me down is my is my res re resistant resisting my misery and not just sort of let, allowing it to pass myself to pass through it, but to fight it. Um, that's when I get in trouble. 
I want to ask you when you when you're writing your plays and you're creating these really rich characters that are uh you know complicated, you know interesting, funny, flawed. I wonder when you're done writing, do you feel like do you mourn the end of of working with them? No, cuz they just get they're just born now. So no, I I don't feel no, I hear writers talk about that. No, I don't feel that at all. I feel like I feel like there's just joy in having sort of introduced them to the world and now they're now they now they live. Um they live they have eternal life, don't they? I mean, they live they live in they until they're forgotten, but who knows that could take I don't know, maybe they maybe they live on past being forgotten. I don't know, but I feel I guess I feel uh, you know, I maybe you know doing the the doing the audio play I was, I did feel a little bit like, I guess I felt a little like, oh, I may not get to do this again, the way with this gang, we may not get, we were on a tour before the pandemic started. And it's unlikely that that will continue just based on economics and so on. Um, you, you know, you can't, you to interrupt something that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a, an industry and then just to get it back again, it's difficult. But um, um, so I, I guess I felt a bit of, um, it was bittersweet to 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 remember how much fun it was to do how rich how rewarding and as an actor who's a playwright or a playwright who's an actor how how much of the being able to to be the one to deliver the lines and get on stage how much does that influence the way you write it feels like it would be a big advantage over a playwright who doesn't act well it's just it's a, the advantage is that i don't i don't necessarily like I don't need to explain it because I can show it. So I, I love the relationship between the playwright actor, me, and the director. It's such a great relationship because I can show, like in this case, I could do it for Richard and Richard would understand what I meant. And then he would also see, oh, if you're not what you think you meant, that's not what you're doing. And then we'd be able to have that conversation. But what was so great is that we were, the, we were we, he was dramaturging the play with me by, via action, not via writing. Like by, I would do it, and then he would he understand what I, my intention was by my action, not by my words, by my behavior as Dougie. So that's really rich, and and I think it's um, it's it just gets you there faster. I think it gets you to the to the heart of it or to the center of it quicker because you're not getting caught up in ideas too much you're you're working with the stuff of theater which is action and behavior um for the podcast we certainly have people that are writers that listen um i just wondered if you had any advice for emerging writers that are struggling to find their voice or feeling you know that they're maybe writing something that's never going to be produced because who knows when, when theater is going to sort of be back the way it was. Is there anything you would say to somebody that is new to writing or? As a playwright, you're writing performance. So you're writing that to me, the center. So you've got like these elements, you've got the text, the direction, the design, the marketing, these, these kind of pillars of, of the theater, but the central thing, the thing that, you, that the thing in the center of that is performance and performance is the thing that is lit. The performance is the thing that carries the heat 
that generates the heat that the audience feels. So what we're doing with our writing is um, trying to manifest performance from it. So that it's so crucial to not only to hear it, but to listen to what you're hearing. You're not writing the gospel. <laughs> you're writing something to be spoken. Hear it and hear, and then listen to what you're hearing and see what, what you think you're saying and what you might not be saying. So integral to your making your play is to hearing your play. And, th and that's a, that doesn't mean you need to get it up on, in, a, in a production. You just means you get some people around and read it and listen. But don't listen. Just just be careful not to be listening for the play you want to hear. Listen to what's there. Daniel, I just want to thank you so much. I really enjoyed getting the chance to speak to you. I love this play and I love recording it. And I'm so happy we can share it with our listeners. And I'm, Me too. I'm really excited. Yeah. I haven't had a lot of experience working audio. And I just found it so interesting how the play where how the play lives in the voice and not just in and that the body carries the voice carries the body of the of the of the performance as well it was really uh, enlightening and interesting for me to do the this because it carries the play is carried through the voice in a way that it, you it's it's again another a word i've been using a lot it's rich That was Laura's interview with playwright Daniel McIver, talking about his play, New Magic Valley Funtown. You can hear the show on Play Me, on the CBC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back in February with a brand new play, Control Damage, by Andrea Scott. This play explores the life of Canadian civil rights icon Viola Desmond and how her act of bravery in a Nova Scotia movie theater in 1946 started a ripple effect that is still felt today. Until then, you can hear Play Me on the radio every Sunday night at 9pm and on Wednesdays at 11pm on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Thanks for listening and stay well. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Theatre or Instagram at PlayMePodcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. A special thanks to our CBC producers, Sarah Clayden, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is R.F. Norani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.